Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Andrea Bonnier, a licensed clinical psychologist and the host of the podcast Baggage Check, Mental Health Talk and Advice, which premiered November 1st. Baggage Check is about getting real regarding mental health and making listeners part of the conversation. She's written several books on topics of psychology, including The Friendship Fix, about topics related to adult friendships. Dr. Bonnier serves on the faculty of Georgetown University, where she recently won the National Excellence in Teaching Award given by the American Psychological Association. She is a frequent commentator in media outlets like NPR, CNN, The Today Show, and The New York Times, and The Washington Post, and her Psychology Today blog has been read more than 25 million times. She speaks to audiences large and small about work-life balance and mental and emotional health. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about this topic of nurturing adult friendships. It's something that we've talked about on this show in a few episodes, and I stumbled across some of your writings, including The Friendship Fix, which is a really fun and interesting book. Thank you. Yeah, and you've done a lot of writing on this subject, so I'm super excited to talk about that with you today. And before we get started with getting into the meat of that, I'd like to get to know you a little bit better as a person and your journey to becoming a psychologist. And also, I want to hear a bit about this new podcast that you've launched called Baggage Check. So maybe we could start with a bit of that. Sure, sure. So yeah, it's so good to be here. I'm an admirer of your work as well. Thank you. You know, when I was a kid, my best friend wanted to be a psychologist, and I thought it sounded like the worst job in the world. Honestly, (laughs) I thought, why would I want to add to my own problems and take on everyone else's? I actually wanted to be a writer or a broadcaster, which ironically, in a way, I did end up doing in some form. I also went through a period I wanted to be a baseball stadium organist because I was Mm. a musician pretty seriously. (laughs) But I studied psychology kind of by accident in college just because I took a course, really fell in love with the subject matter, became a psych major, eventually became a peer counselor and thought, you know, I love this academically. I love actually doing work with people. So it's a natural step for me to become a psychologist. And incidentally, my childhood best friend never touched the field whatsoever. I don't even know if she ended up taking psych in college. Um, So I became a, a licensed clinical psychologist, really working with anxiety disorders and life transitions and relationships. And what I really noticed about relationships in particular was that when I was first getting into the friendship research about 12 years ago, it was really striking to me that we just weren't talking about friendship as a phenomenon that mattered especially if you looked out there in pop culture and if you looked at self-help types of stuff, it's typically about romantic relationships or family relationships only, you know, especially at that time. Thankfully, it's gotten better, but especially at that time, there was so much about, you know, if you were a young heterosexual woman, it was about how to find a man, how to date a man, how to keep a man, how to marry a man. I always joke, the Mm -hmm. only thing I didn't see was how to embalm a man, right? Like pretty much (laughs) it was everything up to that. Or there'd be stuff on parenting. There'd be stuff like that. 
But what I was seeing in my clinical practice was that it was really friendships that often were making or breaking people. And it was it was friendships that mattered immensely in a positive way if people had really good nourishing friendships. And it was also a lack of good friendships that really mattered in a negative way or friendship conflict that was really wrecking people's lives. And so that's what started me really focusing on how is there not more about this, because in my practice, I was seeing it influence people's daily lives immensely. And so I wrote the book, The Friendship Fix, way back then. It's been out for quite a while now. In 2012 is when it came out. And it it really has just always, always been now a topic of interest among journalists. There's more and more recognition. And I think especially with the pandemic, that this stuff matters. And it's really fascinating. And I know we can get into some of the research about just how much friendship matters and that maybe loneliness is really an epidemic and that it's not just about partnering off in some sort of romantic relationship. And it's not just about your family, but it's really about the social support of your friends that means so much. So eventually I started doing more and more media work about it. And really what my work is now, you know, I've written a couple of books since then, and I really have also focused on some of the clinical techniques to help people deal with anxiety and anxious thoughts. So my most recent book, Detox Your Thoughts, really uses some of the acceptance and commitment therapy techniques, some of the mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral techniques. Um, So I do a little bit of everything, but the interest in friendship has grown so much. And that's so gratifying for me to see, because I think especially with the pandemic, we have really had to reckon with the fact that loneliness kills and that if we don't have social support in the ways that we need, it has immense impacts on our physical health and our mental health. And we really need to prioritize community building, building friendships, because this is the stuff that makes or breaks us. Yeah. So the pandemic was a really interesting example of friendships put to the test and recognizing the importance of that. And if we have time later, I would like to ask you some of your thoughts about how the pandemic affected people in that way and and what were the effective methods that people came up with. Because if there ever was like a once in a lifetime experience of an odd period of time where friendships were put to the test, that was definitely it. Yes. Yes, for sure. And I think it really, in a good way, helped reduce some of the stigma for people to say, I'm struggling here. Mm. You know, I am lonely or I am really anxious. And I'm at least glad for that because unfortunately, people really are struggling more than they have in a long time. But I am glad for the fact that more people are able to reach out for help at least. Yeah, for sure. Well, before we get more into the meat of adult friendships and talking about that, just Tell us briefly about Baggage Check. It sounds like a really interesting project you're working on. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great to finally be on the other side of the mic because, you know, I've done press for a long time and I've written for the Washington Post for a long time and have a blog for Psychology Today and I appear on television a lot talking about mental health issues. But I finally decided to do something on my own in terms of a podcast. So Baggage Check is a mental health talk and advice podcast. It has it just launched in early November and it's got twice weekly episodes new episodes. And we have a mixture of everything. So we've got some special guests that we talk to about various topics. We've got some listener questions and advice that we give. Um, And we've got a lot of episodes focused on just actionable tools for mental health. The name Baggage Check actually was what I wrote under at the Washington Post for 15 Mm -hmm. years for mental health and advice. 
but it really seemed time to take it audio and to be able to do more and really have a space where nothing is off limits and where we can talk about mental health in a real way and actually use the science, but also be compassionate. Because in my experience, a lot of mental health science is communicated in a way without compassion. And then a lot of really warm, compassionate mental health stuff is a little bit devoid of science. Um, so I'm always grateful for opportunities like yours when we can actually get clinicians to really talk about this in really real ways. So that's what I'm hoping to do with Baggage Check. And so far, it's been a great, it's been a great time so far. It's getting a really good response. So I'm really excited for this next venture. Yeah, awesome. Well, congratulations on launching that. And anybody listening to this podcast, I give my blessing to go check out Andrea's uh, podcast on Baggage Check. That's really exciting. Uh, I listened to a couple episodes and I loved them. Thank and, you. And um, I also congratulate you on the marketing and branding of Baggage Check because you probably get a lot of travelers who are find <laughs> you and say, well, I was yes. interested in learning about traveling to Rome, but this is really cool too. <laughs> Yes, yes. My podcast is ideal for people who are dealing with the stress of travel, yeah. even if we're not going to necessarily tell you about exactly what luggage has the best locking <laughs> mechanism for your international sojourns. Right. No, I, I love the title. Thank so you. let's talk about first off, adult friendships. So give us the lowdown here. Why are they important? Oh, they're tremendously important. Um, and part of it is that loneliness, sort of the counter to having nourishing relationships, is really now what we can consider an epidemic. Loneliness is associated with all kinds of negative health outcomes. And I'm talking mental health and physical health. We know that loneliness is incredibly bad for your heart. We know that your immune system doesn't function properly when you feel lonely. And so it's really increased too. Subjective feelings of loneliness in modern life have increased above past generations. And there are probably all kinds of sociological reasons for this. We don't have the same types of naturally occurring communities that we used to. People are more isolated. There's more, especially in American culture, there's more focus on the traditional nuclear family. So people have their detached home with their garage and they drive into their house and they go into their own little house. Yeah. Front porches, you know, front porches have kind of made a comeback in terms of some new construction, but it's still not the type of classic experience where you know your neighbors, you're hanging out, you're going to bowling leagues on Friday. Church attendance is down. And, you know, whether you're religious or not, I think we can sort of look at the fact that when people don't routinely gather in communities on a weekly basis, there is a loss there. And I think sometimes for folks, again, even outside of the religious aspect, church provided a sense of community. You know, if you were sick, somebody was going to bring you a casserole. That kind of thing has been gradually eroding in American life. And I think sometimes the workplace has kind of taken the place of that for better or for worse. Anyway, we have this epidemic of loneliness and we're seeing it associated with increased health problems. And there's been really fascinating longitudinal research on this. I mean, one of the longest mental health studies really, and it's not just a mental health study, but a study that went on at Harvard University and that actually began in the 30s and 40s and looked at Harvard undergraduate men. It was all male school at that time and followed them and looked at all kinds of factors, measuring physical health, measuring emotional health. And one of the main predictors of longevity in general was the quality of somebody's relationships in their 20s. So 
the quality of your relationships in your 20s could actually predict in your 70s and 80s what your health level was and whether or not you were still alive. And of course, we know that this is just correlational. So it could go both ways that, you know, if you had health problems, if you had mental health problems, maybe you're less likely to have positive relationships. But there also seems to be a protective mechanism in the way that good quality friendships really, really boost our health. And so friendship, we know that people feeling like they have solid social support, they're more protected against depression. They are better able to recover from trauma. They actually have a better prognosis with various chronic illnesses because friends provide us many things. Friends provide us a sense of stress relief. They can provide us a sense of hope. They can actually really increase our cognitive functioning. So isolation is really, really bad for dementia risk and things like that. You know, a lot of folks who are elderly, it's kind of a double whammy because they get more and more isolated and that actually makes their cognitive decline even more severe. And so we know that friendships are so, so good for us. And yet, I think a lot of times people view them as a luxury or they view them as last on the list for their health, or especially if people are busy in their daily life, they're taking care of kids, they're taking care of elderly relatives, they've got their jobs, they've got all these responsibilities. It feels like there's just not enough time to value friendships. And in reality, I tell people, you know, friendships in terms of your health are every bit as important as going to the gym or flossing your teeth or all the things that we routinely think, oh yeah, that's healthy for us. But you know, we think of it as being selfish to go to a happy hour with people who make us laugh or to go to that book club that we've been meaning to join with our neighbors, but we feel like we don't have time, but that stuff is valuable too. And I always like to emphasize to folks, it's not about, hey, let me just get a certain number of friends and check that box. People have different levels of need, right? Sometimes I give talks on friendships and people come up to me afterwards and they say, well, you know, I just don't need that many friends. And I say, well, that's great. Do you feel actually satisfied with the friends that you have? That's the key question. Some people need 15. Some people need two, right? It's not about quantity and it's not about making an introvert become an extrovert or anything like that. The million dollar question is, do I feel supported and nourished and satisfied by the friendships I do have? You know, I liken it to different types of plants. Almost all plants need at least a little bit of sun. Some need full sun, some need, you know, just a little bit. But friendship is the same way. We all probably need it in some way. Some people need it a ton. Some people need it a bit. The question is, are we getting what we need? Because if we're not, that's when isolation and loneliness start to creep in. Right. That makes perfect sense. And one thing that you were talking about that I really resonated with is this idea. And I don't know if this is similar in Europe or other kinds of Western types of cultures, but definitely in the US, there's this idea of barricading oneself behind the wall yes. and the subdivision or whatnot. And there's very little interaction of people out in the community. And I know that when I travel, like I'm thinking of just off the top of my head, Vietnam, you go into Vietnam and everybody's out on the street. People are mingling, they're communicating. In fact, most people, they have these very skinny, narrow, three or four story houses that just go straight up. And then the bottom floor is the kind of the communal place that's open and it's right in front of the street. 
and there's real sense of community and it just it just seems so weird i know a lot of people from southeast asia and other cultures who come to the us and just like where is everybody yeah. there's the, the community is there's just no community and the, you have to seek it out like at like a church or some other kind of a congregation or mm -hmm. work or whatever so yeah for sure yeah i and can see so how Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, I was going to say, and basically suburbia, I think, accentuated that problem. Right. And there's a whole history there in terms of American culture and the advent of suburbia and this emphasis on the nuclear family sort of being its own thing against the world. It really took away some of the ways that we were more similar to other countries in the past. And we kind of became more isolated, sadly, because of that. Yeah. So I know this is a huge topic and we don't need to go for hours on on this particular one but just briefly when you look at the phenomenology of adult friendships between males and females is there anything you can say about what you've noticed about maybe differences and how those play out and you know can one gender learn from the other in terms of the way that they typically i know we're generalizing here but mm -hmm. i'm just curious about your thoughts about sort of gender differences sure so in terms of gender differences, really the need for friendship, we really see as being very similar across men and women. The problem is our cultural practices when it comes to friendship actually don't seem to measure up. I think we stigmatize emotional intimacy among men more so than we do among women. We kind of maybe make fun of it with men. We call it a bromance. We don't give men the <laughs> space to value their friendships as much as we should. And yet men need it just as much. And in fact, the main difference that we start to see sometimes is that men might actually have a harder time when they're lonely. They might actually, if they're in heterosexual marriages, rely more on their wives for their social life or their, consider their wife their best friend. And so you see a lot of men who become very isolated after divorce or after the loss of a wife because their friends were kind of just the spouses of their wife's friends. And mm -hmm. that's really sad. In fact, I've just recently heard from a listener of my podcast, and we're going to address this question of, I'm worried about my dad because after my mom died, he literally just doesn't have friends that he hangs out with. So I think part of the problem is culturally, we don't allow men that space and they we don't let them value their friendships. Men tend, and these are broad generalizations, men tend to sort of gather for activities, we might call those sort of side to side friendships. You know, they're kind of watching the game together or they're doing a thing, right? They're not right. just gathering together. Whereas women are more comfortable in general with saying, hey, let's meet for coffee. We're face to face where the whole point of meeting is to actually interact and talk. And I think that's another way that it's harder for men um, to be able to actually get that emotional intimacy, be intimacy because they're not as expected to say, hey, we're gonna meet and work through that problem or we're gonna meet and talk about our lives. Yeah. We don't have the ability to do that as much as women, but we know that they need that too. And I think it's unfortunate in our culture that we've made it harder for men to do that because the research really is clear that isolation among men is not only, you know, just as bad for health as it would be among women, but it's actually perhaps more prevalent in certain ways because it's harder for men traditionally to just automatically have the type of friendships that are going to provide the emotional nurturing. And I think that's a cultural artifact that we need to really get rid of. I agree completely. I think there's a whole lot here that men can learn from women about 
intimacy and interaction. And it's tough because of the socialization that they experience growing up around interacting with people, letting those vulnerable emotions open. So I'm glad you're pointing all of that out. And there's certainly a lot of work to be done here for helping men educate and feel comfortable more so with intimacy and friendship. So thanks for yeah. pointing that out. I think it's super, super important. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. I just, I wish that we could be empowering in terms of allowing men the ability to be emotionally intimate in the ways that we know that they need. And instead, again, we kind of treat it as an afterthought. You know, we don't allow them that space. And I think it's no exaggeration to say that it's killing some of them. Yeah. And some of the increase in substance abuse rates and opioid addiction and isolation and some of the ways that economic factors have hit men in particular in particular over the past decade. I think they need that support more than ever. Absolutely. So You've written about another topic in some of your writings about friendships that's kind of fascinating. And I'd really like to hear some of your thoughts about this. And this is the idea of like personality dynamics and how they interact with friendships. Because, I, you know, people often talk about such and such person is a lousy friend or they let me down or whatnot. And obviously, specific things can happen. But I'm wondering if there's a way to kind of assess and take a look at personality mixes and whether or not that's something to even pay attention to and whether or not the dynamics in a friendship might work or might not work. I know it's a big mm -hmm. question, but I'm wondering if yeah. you could shed some light on that. Sure. You know, it's fascinating to me because opposites can attract and opposites can also be terrible for each other, much oh, yeah. like romantic relationships, yes. right? Right. So what I always recommend people do at the outset is to kind of look at their patterns, right? So when people are really ready to look at their friendship patterns, it's really important to notice your history, basically, because I think sometimes people have a tendency to go for a certain type of friend that has a certain type of personality. And often they're drawn to the person because the person offers something that they don't have. So it could be sort of an opposite attract situation. So for instance, the person who's always too shy to be able to talk to folks that they're romantically interested in is drawn to the friend who's going to make that more easy because they're going to go out to bars and the friend is going to get the conversations going. <laughs> the wingman. Exactly. Or the person who, you know, is kind of laissez-faire about making plans or is kind of disorganized is drawn to the person who plans the vacation and who says, hey, let's go to this concert. And I've already bought tickets because that's very attractive, right? The problem becomes the situation where we start to define ourselves by our relationship to that person. So it's like suddenly I might feel even lazier compared to my really hyper-organized friend, right? Or somehow now I feel even shyer compared to my really extroverted friend because it's a matter of really seeing yourself through the lens of the friendship. And that can be okay, but sometimes it starts to mean that we view ourselves as, you know, a little bit differently than we normally would. And that can start to affect our self-esteem because we're really starting to define ourselves through the filter of this other person. And so I think we have to be really careful to ask instead, how does this person still bring out qualities in me that I feel good about? I don't want to just be the shy person compared to this outgoing friend. 
how do I also feel good about myself? In any good friendship, there should be an element of feeling like you bring something to the table in terms of your personality. So even if you're different, those differences should be valued. It shouldn't feel like, oh, I come up short. I'm the boring one of this friendship. And by really looking at your history in terms of your patterns, you can start to see maybe repeated things like, oh my goodness, I am sort of choosing the same type of person. And maybe that's great, but maybe if I look closer at the pattern, it turns out these friendships are kind of crashing and burning because one of us is getting frustrated with the other, or we're not communicating well, or I'm getting exhausted by going out all the time because it turns out I'm just more of an introvert than this person is. So I think different personalities, you know, there's so much that's very much like romantic relationships, right? There's so many ways that we start to gravitate towards different personalities, and maybe it represents the best friend that we had in childhood, or maybe it represents a complete rejection of our parents, or maybe it represents, you know, the first time that we actually were exposed to this new idea and we wanted to go all in, and now we're joining a rock band because this friend (laughs) is so charismatic. And when we look, you know, any kind of friendship can be wonderful if it makes us feel like we're being valued for who we really are and that it's not conditional in terms of, well, I need to be more like this person, right? Because that's where the problems begin. If you're going to be the shy one in the friendship, that's great as long as you feel okay about it. And if you feel like you're being defined in that way, it can't be in a negative way because otherwise you're always feeling like you're being judged or Mm -hmm. that you're not good enough. So in that particular example, if you found yourself repeatedly in a pattern of being drawn to say very extroverted and outgoing people. Mm -hmm. And you continually found yourself like not feeling good about yourself in that relationship. And maybe even choosing friends who don't pay a lot of attention to you, you notice, then -hmm. that could be an example of choosing a personality that's opposite of you and also not, not very healthy. I guess like a good psychologist, we look for patterns, right? We exactly. Look, yeah. So that exactly. would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And we can do that for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's still great to have those exciting life of the party types, but maybe we also need a closer friend who's more like us and where we don't necessarily feel like we're such a wallflower because compared to this other friend, we feel more normal because this friend is more typically like us. So how about this idea? I I don't know how you feel about this concept, about this idea of like, should friends sort of fulfill everything for a person in a friendship? Or do you pick friends that might serve different purposes in different situations? Like we think of that concept of the BFF, right? Like just enmeshed, right? Like we know everything about everything about each other. We know what each other is thinking before we ever say it. Is that what we should be shooting for in friendships or is this more of a diverse kind of view we could take? Yeah, I think the more diverse view is better. I mean, Mm. honestly, I don't even think that for romantic relationships, we should expect one person to be our absolute everything, right? I think there's so much pressure in terms of that. But in terms of friendship, I think it's even more important that we recognize that friendships can serve different purposes in our lives. And purposes makes it sound so utilitarian, like, you know, we're choosing people and putting them in boxes, and these are our (laughs) tools. And we certainly don't want to view people in a way that we're using them. 
But the truth is there is so much room for all different types of friends. And thank mm-hmm. goodness for that. I mean, first of all, there's no cultural expectation of monogamy with friendship. So you can have a lot of different friends. You can have the work friends that really is a great sounding board about what you're going through in your professional life and that makes you laugh at meetings and that you have lunch with a couple times a week at the office and that really gets where you want to be professionally but you wouldn't have them pick you up from the airport or, you know, they're not going to visit you when you have knee surgery, right? Just like you can have the friend who is an excellent listener and who you would call and cry with if you're going through something really hard, but you wouldn't ask them for professional advice because they have no clue what you even do for a living, really, because it's so different than them. You can have friends that are really good for exploring new horizons. You know, oh, I love to go to the theater with this friend or, oh, this friend, I love talking to her about the books I read because she's so smart and she always has a different perspective than me. And I love that, but maybe she's also really disorganized. And if I ever needed her to pick me up at the airport, I'd be waiting for six hours. And so, you know, I think there's room for all different types of people in our lives. And I think that is a really good thing. We don't want it to be like, oh, I've I've got all these superficial friendships where I'm just checking a bunch of boxes. But I also think it's really important we don't put pressure on ourselves to have one BFF that's everything to us, because I don't think that that's really the way that friendship could work. And, you know, some friends are great for meeting mutual goals with like, oh, with this friend, we're working towards, you know, running a half marathon together. And so we train together and we talk about our fitness goals and we sometimes talk about our lives. Whereas with this friend, They're not the least bit interested in fitness stuff, but instead we talk about really deep stuff, like how we're both caring for elderly parents or that kind of thing. There's really room for a lot of different friendships. The same is true, I think, for different seasons of friendships too, right? I think there's a lot of pressure now with social media to kind of hang on to friendships forever, right? Like once I'm connected to this person, they're going to be in my life forever. And I think That can sometimes be unfortunate because it makes us not appreciate the fact that sometimes friendships have seasons. And if a friendship fades away mutually because life circumstances change, that doesn't take away the value of the friendship as it was, you know, and you don't want to ditch somebody or ghost somebody. You want it to be a mutual thing, but not all friendships are meant to last 50 years. And that's okay too. That doesn't mean the person had less value during the time they were in our lives. Right. So, Andrea, you touched upon social media. I'm interested Mm -hmm. in hearing a little bit about your thoughts about that. Now, when you wrote The Friendship Fix, I'm not sure how big Facebook was and Instagram. Probably a lot of those things were a lot younger and some of them didn't exist. But now, obviously, so much goes on in social media and we have friends in our social media and people are liking our stuff and we connect at certain levels. And I'm, I'm just curious, like, how do you put the whole social media phenomenon in light of this adult friendship concept? I know that's another big question, but I'm just hearing, I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about that. Yeah. And so when I wrote the friendship fix, Facebook was around and it was sort of this question of to friend or not to friend somebody, right? As it was kind of this like unilateral, like, am I going to let this person into my Facebook life, so to speak? And it was such in its infancy, the whole idea of everything that social media has come to mean. I mean, Mm. it really was a world 
away from mm-hmm. what we have now. I think the bottom line theme that I am constantly seeing over the past couple of years is really the basic question of quality versus quantity and how do we choose to spend our time? Because I do think that in some ways, social media is taking away the intimacy of the other friendships that we would have spent more time building and nourishing. I am by no means anti-social media. I think in a lot of ways, it allows people to keep in contact with people that mean something to them. It allows people to find people that have something in common with them that maybe maybe they have some rare illness and social media has allowed them to join a Facebook group for other people that have that illness. And now they really feel heard and understood. So I am certainly not saying that it's bad, but I think we have to look at the, the question of how is our time spent and is it quality time? Because- A lot of times it seems that at the end of our scrolling session, when we've just been hanging out on social media, we actually don't feel more connected. We tried to feel more connected. That was the itch that sent us there. Hey, let me scroll and and feel something, feel like I'm part of something. But afterwards, maybe we actually just ended up feeling a little bit of jealousy because we were just looking at somebody's vacation photos and kind of Mm. thinking, wow, I never get to go on trips like that. I think that has to do with this new way of people performing online, essentially. People really present themselves in more calculated ways, I think, than before. This idea of curating your own personal brand. So I think that takes away some of the intimacy because it becomes very performative. And I think that's what a friendship really is not. You know, a friendship isn't really about reading press releases from somebody else about how they're doing. A friendship is about the spontaneity and the vulnerability and the sort of organic back and forth. And that can still happen online. I'm not saying it has to be face to face, but I don't think it happens when you're just kind of posting something and somebody else is clicking like. So what we want to see online is more of a more of a way of getting at the back and forth that really is more spontaneous and organic I think that's the danger of social media is that it feels like it's scratching an itch, but in reality, it's making us more itchy and we just need to do it more and more. And it's not actually giving us what we need. So I really encourage people to just notice and observe, you know, what do you feel like when you go on it? What makes you go on it? What are some of the triggers? Do you actually feel better afterwards? And maybe you can adjust your time on there. You know, maybe there are certain people that it's like, you know what? I always feel worse after reading their stuff. So mm-hmm. I'm going to sort of mute them on my timeline for a while. Or maybe I'm going to set little limits and I'm not going to go on right before bed just automatically because I'd rather be reading a book during that time. Or maybe instead of just clicking like, I'm going to take that same amount of time to write somebody actually a message and say, hey, remember when we did this or to make plans? Hey, I see you have a lot going on, but how about going to a concert next week or whatever it is? A lot to pay attention to there in the social media. And I think like mm-hmm. what, what you said, it's very important for one to pay attention to how they're actually feeling regarding the interactions that yes. they're having to be be conscious, try to be consciously aware of that. Mm-hmm. You know, in friendships, things change in people's lives. And I know that they can really affect what happens within that friendship. And I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about that. Say, you know, I have a friend and a major transition happens in my life. A a new career starts. I have a new partner, get married, have children, have a baby. There's all sorts of things that happen in a person's life. And 
oftentimes that might impact the amount of time I have for a friend or even the kinds of things that are on my mind to talk about. And where do you see the challenges with that? And how do people sort of navigate that in their lives? Yeah. I mean, this is the number one thing that I think drives a wedge into friendships that were otherwise solid is the life transition, Mm -hmm. right? You used to automatically see each other all the time because you live next door or you work together or you were on the sidelines together of your kids' softball games for six years. And now that naturally occurring proximity is gone. And so you have to put forth effort that you didn't before. This often really is the determining factor. Do we want to still put forth effort? And, you know, somebody moves away, somebody gets married or divorced, somebody retires, somebody's kids grow. These are all situations that can drastically change how easy it is to see a friend and how much you have in common. So I think it really takes a reality check in these situations. There are friendships that it's worth the effort to continue. And this person's going to be in my life for a long time. And we're so close and I value them that now it's going to be harder to get together, but we're going to put forth the effort. There are other friendships that are just going to take a different form. You know, now, instead of sitting on the sidelines together for six months out of the year, we're going to call each other every once in a while. And that's going to be fine. And we're not going to be as involved in each other's daily lives, but that's okay. And then again, there are other friendships that might sort of fade away at that time. But I think we have to normalize the idea that it is worth it sometimes to now put forth new effort, even though it feels unnatural. If you want this person to stay in your life, you might have to do something that feels harder and more uncomfortable than you used to because it's not as naturally, you're not as naturally close to them in terms of proximity, but that's okay. You know, if it's worth it to do, it can take a different form. And I think communication is key here. You know, classic situation is two very close friends. One of them has a baby and the other one doesn't. And so now it's like automatically it's much harder to hang out. This person, you know, needs two weeks advance notice because they need childcare. Their daily life is subsumed with diapers and all these things that the other person doesn't even know or care about. What's going to really happen here? Can they communicate and say, hey, let's figure out a way to still stay close. And, you know, now instead of going out on the town, Maybe after your baby's in bed, I'm going to come over and we're going to watch a movie every once in a while. And maybe even though I'm bored out of my skull talking about diapers, <laughs> that, you know, if your kid's having a problem with diapers that's taking up all your mental energy, sure, let's talk about it because it matters to you. So I'm going to let it matter to me too. And just com- being communicative about it and being realistic. And sometimes it drives a wedge between people and you try to make it work and, and things just cool off in a friendship And again, I don't really think we have to pathologize that either, as long as both people are treating each other with respect. Yeah. So it's normalizing both sides of it. One, the importance of trying to maintain a friendship if it's important to you. And there's Mm -hmm. certainly nothing wrong. In fact, it's a healthy and important thing to do. And also normalizing the other side of it. Like you mentioned, sometimes there's seasons in friendships and when there's a lot of poopy diapers all over the place, that might be the winter (laughs) for some friendships. Yes. It yes. doesn't necessarily mean that you're never going to be closer in the future, right? Or Exactly. It can change back. You know, I've seen that 
among a lot of women in particular that, you know, people who used to be close and then the kid thing sort of drove a wedge. But then once the kids are a bit older, they have more time again, or maybe they get so tired of talking about kids stuff that they can't wait to hang out with their childless friends because they they have their mom friends, but their childless friends don't go on and on about who has what GPA in their their high school (laughs) courses. And so it's a relief to talk to their childless friends, right? So I think- it's just a matter of being open and communicative. Yeah, for sure. That makes that makes perfect sense. What about some common challenges that might happen in friendships, feelings that come up around, say, jealousy or envy? Like that's not so uncommon for that to happen when there's two friends and, and one has something going on and the other has those kinds of feelings. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, jealousy can be really normal. The question is, how long does it last and how extreme it is, right? And I think people have to be honest with themselves that sometimes you do need to take a pause out of respect for the friendship if things are really getting in the way. I think I I see this all the time when it comes to infertility, for instance. You know, let's say two people are really close. One of them is able to get really pregnant, pregnant really easily. And the other one has been struggling with infertility for a couple of years. And so really just doesn't want to go to the baby shower, for instance. So can you be honest with yourself and say, hey, it's okay for me to take a pause. Can I communicate with my friends and be open about that? You know what? Being being around baby stuff is really, really tough for me. I am truly excited for you, but I'm also struggling myself. Do you mind if, you know... I take a pause on going to your baby shower. And I think, again, when feelings are really, really intense, I think it doesn't do us any good to try to grin and bear it if it's only going to make things worse, right? And so if there's a pattern of jealousy, for sure, I think it's something for you to explore and work on. You know, if you're constantly jealous of your friends about X, Y, and Z, we actually had a listener question about this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago then that's worth taking a look at. But other times it's like, okay, we have some sensitive subjects. You know, if you're going through something really, really hard and then for your friend, bam, it's this easy thing and it's right in your face, it can be hard. Um, I think people think that they're not supposed to be jealous. And so they try to, throw the they try to sort of shove the feelings under the surface and then they end up exploding and then that's worse because the friend is like what is your deal you stormed out of my baby shower and we're a total jerk and it's like okay well maybe i shouldn't have actually been there because there was so much going on for me but again i think it's important to look at the patterns of jealousy yeah and in that particular case like i don't even know if jealousy is the accurate emotion there. I mean, I don't know if Mm -hmm. I can think of a better way to label it. So for lack of a better label, let's call it jealousy. But what's Mm -hmm. actually going on there is the person is feeling really, really badly about themselves and something that's important to them. And so going to the friend's baby shower would trigger it and not because you don't want your friend to have a baby, but you yourself are really struggling and having a hard time with it. And mm-hmm. I like what you said about like taking a step back and paying attention to how you're feeling about this and that, and that, that that's a trigger, not because it's my friend, they're having a baby, right. but because it's me really struggling with something. And, you know, it's like a trauma trigger. Like, you know, if you're dealing with trauma, you don't put yourself in a situation unless you're doing some exposure therapy purposely, <laughs> right. you know, um, you have to pay attention to what's, going to be harmful for you. So I like right. the way of, I like the lo- looking at it that way. It makes a lot of sense. Right. I will say 
sometimes there are friendships where this is kind of baked in this competitive, envious sort of frenemy type. And that's the word we might yeah. type of use. And I think that's something a little bit different because in that situation, the dynamic has kind of been there all along the sort of one upmanship. And maybe it's driven by both people's insecurities. Maybe it's driven by one person being sort of super competitive and pulling the other person in. And I think it's important to be realistic about that, too, because sometimes that veers into the territory of is this friendship actually really good for me or does it make me feel insecure? Does it make me be somebody that I don't want to be? Does it make me catty? Does it make me compare myself constantly all the time? Because I certainly have seen that. And, and that goes to the larger question of, you know, a lot of friendships don't necessarily bring out the best in us. And we have to be realistic about that too. I do think that's where social media makes it a lot harder because I think even people who wouldn't necessarily be competitive and insecure can start to feel that way when they're constantly bombarded with these questions of how they measure up to everybody else. And, you know, we're just exposed to so much more information that other people are putting out there about what they want us to think about their lives. That used to not really be a problem. We had no idea that somebody else got this new car or whatever it might be. What about if you have a friend and you disagree with some of the choices she's making in her life? And you just sort of seeing her make some what you believe to be mistakes and you don't really approve of some of the things she's doing. Like, how does that play into a friendship dynamic? And what would you have to say about that? I see this conflict all the time. And ultimately, I think you have to know the limits of your role, that it is not your job as a friend to truly change somebody else's behavior when they're a grown adult. However, it's also not your role to condone stuff that you don't feel comfortable condoning. So I think it's a matter of being respectful and honest, but also knowing your limits and knowing where you can set a boundary. So for instance, if your friend is constantly doing something that you think is detrimental to their health, you can choose to say, you know, I don't want to be around when you do that because I feel strongly uh, that you're endangering yourself. Or the classic one is somebody's in a new relationship romantically with somebody and the friend is like, oh, I don't think this person is good for them. Yeah. And so it's really tricky. I think you have to be gentle, but you have to to be firm, to let your opinion be known, but also recognize that ultimately you can't control somebody's behavior. You can set your own boundaries and say, you know, when you do this, I don't want to be around it. Or if your boyfriend is speaking to you this way, I'm going to get up and leave because I can't stand to hear him treating you that way. And I think it's really concerning, but ultimately you can't really change it. You do need to protect yourself sometimes though, because part of what we see in the research is this idea of social contagion. And we really can pick up some not so great health habits from our friends. And so I think we see this with substance abuse a lot. Uh, we see this with compulsive spending a lot. We see this with all kinds of things. So I think you do owe it to yourself to be able to speak out and say, you know, when you do this, I'm not comfortable with it and I am going to take a break and I don't want to go out to this particular place or with these particular people anymore. But ultimately, it's really hard to watch a friend make self-destructive choices. And sometimes this is what makes friendships end, honestly, is because we don't want to have to bear witness to somebody not getting the help they need or making choices that we know are bad for them. Yeah, the substance abuse one is a particularly salient one. And I've come across that mm -hmm. so many times in my practice where you have two friends that maybe if they've been buddies since childhood, mm -hmm. they both got into substance abuse, 
One got out of substance abuse and is working really hard to maintain it. Mm -hmm. The other hasn't. And the friend who got out of the substance abuse is still trying to be a good friend and supportive, mm -hmm. but this person is being really self-destructive and just going down and then blaming the, the first person for not being a good friend and not being there. And they're really stuck. It's like, I, this isn't healthy for me. It's not healthy for you. And I can't stand seeing you go through it, but I can't get pulled into it anymore. Yes. I'm working so hard to stay out. Yeah, That's a really tough spot for people. It's very tough. It's very tough. And we do have to protect our own emotional and mental health. And it can be so heartbreaking. I mean, a lot of people will really liken it to truly losing a friend when you watch yeah. somebody slip away into addiction. For instance, you can do everything you can to try to encourage them to get help. But it's one of the greatest pains of being human, I think, to watch somebody not take that help or not accept that help and to know ultimately that you can't change that, even though you've tried to communicate your limits and, and what you believe they should do. Yeah. It's so tough for people, you know, mm -hmm. well, with the time we have left, let's, let's do something kind of fun here. Let's talk mm -hmm. about ways to bolster friendships. Mm -hmm. I know you've talked a lot about <laughs> those kinds of things. And I think it might be nice, like, Two people are friends and maybe they're a little bit dissatisfied with the amount or the quality that they've been able to connect for whatever sets of reasons. Give us some recommendations on how we can improve on that. Yeah, this is the good stuff, right? I think sometimes people forget about just the little things, right? That yeah. how far a simple little thing can go. So, you know, you send somebody by text an old photo of the two of you that makes them laugh, or you make sure to send a little handwritten note just because, because you think that it'll brighten their day. You Or you bring your coworker their favorite candy because they are a lifesaver when you all are really working <laughs> really hard. And they bring, you know, sometimes the day-to-day -day stuff, I think people get caught up in the fact that, oh, I owe this, per I owe this person an email and, you know, I got to do this big catch up thing or, oh, I haven't spoken to her in a while. So we got to have this three hour conversation that I make time for. And it's like sometimes it's just a matter of doing the little stuff, because what it does is, first of all, the little act of kindness really boosts our mood. It boosts our connection to the friend. And of course, it boosts the friend's mood. Another thing that I really love is the idea of kind of automating some aspect of the friendship because a lot of times when people are feeling really like they aren't able to keep in touch as much as they want it's because you know maybe there's a group of four people and they always try the same thing in terms of oh let's shoot out an email about when we can get together and then this person can't do this day and this person can't do this day and then it eventually dies on the vine because by the time people come up with a time three weeks have passed and somebody stopped responding because it goes to the bottom of their yeah. inbox right no, it's next to impossible right? exactly so try to sort of automate things a little bit especially this works better for groups of friends but it can even work better for work okay for duos like okay you have a person you're going to make a habit that you each go for a walk before work you know every other friday uh, or and that's when you choose to call each other or you call each other in the carpool lane every thursday evening when you're waiting for your kid to get out of school and it's a 20 minute wait and you're sitting there and you call or you have four friends that love to get together but schedules never match so you say you know the second Sunday of every month, we're going to have that a standing date for brunch. Any given month, if you can't come, that's okay. But we have the momentum and the automatic nature working on our side so we don't get lost in all of the effort 
that it takes. You know, I always feel like somebody who had more tech savvy than me could probably do a startup type of app that <laughs> it makes this a little bit easier. Because I think the more yeah. you can streamline it and get momentum, then it's like, oh, yeah, I have my book club, you know, every every third Saturday of the month. Or, oh, yeah, I always talk to my my friend Friday mornings when I have a longer commute or things like that. And then it's just built in. Um, the other thing is sometimes setting goals together. This can be really important, I think, for adding some spark and for helping meet goals, that accountability. But it's also kind of exciting to say, oh, my friend and I, we're going to, you know, we're going to train for a 10K together or my mm -hmm. friend and I are both going to try to quit vaping or something like that. Or we both want to read, you know, read a book five times. We want to read five books this year. So we're going to work on it together. I think that can be really good because as long as it's goals that both people want to meet, it can really help with accountability. And then you feel like you're doing something. And for those people that think that friendship is just a luxury they don't have time for, this helps them because it makes them feel a little bit more productive. I also think being able to look forward to something is really important. So if you have a long distance friend or even not long distance friend, why not plan kind of a special outing and get the anticipation of it a couple months in advance? So even if it's like a concert or something, get something on the calendar. You know, we know this is why experiences are often great as gifts more so than objects, because you get that anticipation and then you also get the memories of it afterwards. So, you know, why not plan a trip or a little event that you can kind of look forward to with a friend? I mean, that really helps to boost our connection because we've got this mutual anticipation and excitement. But really, it is a matter of prioritizing it. I often find that's the biggest barrier. And I really emphasize to people, whatever you think is the priority that's getting in the way of your friendship, you will probably be better at that if you actually value friendship. So, you know, you've got parents who say, well, my kid takes up all my energy and I, I don't have time to maintain my, it's like, okay, you'll probably be a more patient and calm parent if you've got the stress relief of friends. And, and also with parenting in particular, I think it's really important that we teach our kids that friendship matters. I think it's really good when parents show their kids, hey, there's people in my life that I actually spend time with and prioritize and that I'm loyal to. That's a great lesson for kids to see. We shouldn't have our kids think that the only thing our parent is, is our parent and that there's nobody else in their life because that's not healthy either. Yeah. Right. So that's modeling friendship behavior from a young age. Mm -hmm. So you said some things that were kind of interesting. So when it comes to connecting with friends, especially maybe friends that you don't get to see that often, there's the more lighter level, sharing fun things. And mm -hmm. I remember when we did such and such thing, that was so funny and showing a picture or having a conversation about something that a mutual interest that's funny for you, that's sort of light. Mm -hmm. But that sounds like that sort of maintains a bond of appreciation that two people have for each other. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a deeper level of sharing goals, talking about things that are going on in your life, mm -hmm. and um, sharing those kinds of things. And that's more of a connection of uh, intimacy in terms of deeper things going on. So just sort of trying to make efforts to maintain that uh, both sides of that can be very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. Third thing I heard you say that was also really important was this idea of actually scheduling in one way or another, mm -hmm. because like you said, spontaneously trying to get together, you know, two friends, let alone four friends would be 
is tough. So yes. those are all great suggestions, Andrea. I, they yeah. make per, they make a lot of sense. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, because I really think this stuff is so important. I think often the first step is just giving ourselves permission to let it matter and to say, this is going to be a goal just as important to me as my physical health. Right. And I, I would add making new friends, similar thing. You know, a lot of times I work with people who move to a new city and there's kind of this shame about, you know, well, I don't really have any friends here or I yeah. don't really have a community or I've left a job and like, all my friends have had kids and I haven't. So now I have no one to hang out with. And there's this element of shame. And I say, you know, look at it as a priority and a goal. There's no shame in it. There's, I think it harkens back to this idea of, you know, sitting alone in the second grade lunchroom, like, oh, there's, I don't have friends. That's so embarrassing. But no, most people go through periods of life where they need to make new friends for whatever reason. And I think it's really important to just treat it like a priority and a goal and say, hey, this is important to my health. I need friendships. So here's how I'm going to attack this. And here's step one. And I'm going to do this activity or I'm going to join this organization that does community service service or I'm going to actually talk to that person that is my coworker that is really cool and I'm going to suggest maybe we get coffee or something like that you know I think pushing yourself to do it and to have it be a priority is really important and also knowing that not everyone that you try to create a friendship with is going to become your best friend. That's okay. There's so much stigma on this too, right? I mean, we all recognize that the first person that we've ever dated was probably not meant to be our spouse. But I think right. with, with friendship, we judge ourselves like, oh, I tried to become friends with that person and it didn't really take. What's wrong with me? It's like, there's nothing wrong with you. It's a numbers game. You have to figure out compatibility over time. And it's okay to just prioritize meeting a bunch of people and and seeing what works and what doesn't. I mean, there's so many examples of where that can take place, but you often see people going off to college. Mm -hmm. Like you've probably had patients who were mm -hmm. graduating and going to college and then all of a sudden they're making all these new friends, but then they're wondering if these friends are any good for them. It's like, mm -hmm. you just started college. Like, <laughs> it'll take a little while. You're going to meet every week. You're going to be meeting different people. And yes. sooner or later, you'll find your people in college. But yes. The kids who are on the hallway with you are not necessarily going to be your BFFs, right? Right. And that is such an important point that they should not necessarily be your BFFs. We have to be mindful, right? I think we fall into friendships sometimes in a way that is so sort of automatic by proximity and we don't scrutinize it like we should, you know, be the equivalent of like deciding to marry someone just because they happen to be the proverbial person next door with friendships. It's like, we do this all the time. And, and the truth is sometimes those friendships work out beautifully. I mean, I can say definitively some of my very best friends in life to this day are people who my freshman year of college happened to be sleeping, you know, 10 yards from me. And I think that's <laughs> wonderful, but we can't take that for granted because sometimes people fall into that relationship and they don't notice, mm, maybe this actually isn't a great relationship, but it's what I got. So I'm sticking with it. So we have to be really mindful. And your example is a perfect one that, you know, college is this whole big new thing. And all of a sudden I'm starting from scratch and I got to meet all these people. And it's like 48 hours in, I'm, I'm locked into, you know, having every meal with this person <laughs> that I room with, or, you know, I, I need to join a fraternity or sorority. Absolutely. And because I, I just need somebody right away. And it's like, breathe and be mindful and really ask yourself, 
Does this person feel compatible? Is this really how I want to be spending my time? Do we have similar values? Does there seem to be reciprocity? Is it somebody that really brings out the best in me? Because otherwise you kind of get sucked in and then it's hard to leave. So Andrea, this has been a super interesting and important conversation about friendships. I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts on the topic. Yeah, you know, I've really enjoyed talking with you about this. And I think my final thoughts truly would be that this is a health issue. So if you think of social life as something really kind of frivolous or that you don't have time for, really think about how much it does matter to your longevity and to your physical as well as mental health and give yourself the permission to view this as something to prioritize because I really think it does still get short shrift in our society, even though it's improved. I think we still kind of view it as a luxury and we're busier than ever before or so we feel. And yet we need to really think about how much of that time is true quality time that that feels connected because it's so worth it. Yeah, absolutely. And just on that note, I just want to make a special plea here as a male to all the male listeners who are listening to this podcast episode to take this very seriously because friendships are important to you and mm -hmm. it needs to be prioritized just like working out at the gym, mm -hmm. doing well at your job, like just from a health perspective and a mental health and emotional, like take this seriously. It's really mm -hmm. an important one. So thank you for that, Andrea. Yes, you're very welcome. Thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.